Hey folks, Preet here. As many of you know by now, Ann Milgram, my co-host on the Cafe Insider podcast, has been nominated to lead the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. And we wish her well, and we'll miss her. But today I'm excited to share that my friend Joyce Vance will be my new co-host. Joyce served as a U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama when I was a U.S. attorney in Manhattan. She is now a law professor at the University of Alabama School of Law, a frequent contributor for NBC and MSNBC, and a co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. To celebrate, we are making the full episode of Cafe Insider free this week. As you might expect, we discuss the closing arguments in the Derek Chauvin trial. To hear our future conversations and access all other exclusive Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And for a limited time, use the code JOYCE for 50% off the annual membership price. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. And now, on to the show. It's about 5.40 p.m. on Tuesday, April 20th. And earlier today, this morning, my new co-host on the Insider podcast, Joyce Vance, and I recorded our first episode together. And we spent a lot of time talking about the summations in the Derek Chauvin case and what we thought about the relative strengths of the case brought by the prosecution. But as the whole world knows by now, about 30 minutes ago, there was a verdict in the Chauvin case. Unanimous jury found beyond a reasonable doubt that former police officer Derek Chauvin was guilty on each of the three counts with which he was charged. Murder in the second degree, murder in the third degree, and manslaughter in the second degree. And I thought I would just react quickly to the verdict. And obviously, I will have more to say about it, and Joyce will have more to say about it, and we'll have more to say about it together. First, reacting not as a lawyer or a prosecutor, but as an American and as a human being, I, I feel enormous relief uh, and gratitude that the verdict was reached and it was guilty on all counts. I think we've been in something of a state of you know, suspended animation in this country about what would happen in this case, given the videotape evidence, given the common sense arguments that would be made in favor of conviction, that if if this man couldn't be convicted, then what kind of justice could there be for anyone in this country, black, white, or otherwise, but especially if you're brown or black? There's no joy in this moment. I know there's some people who are celebrating, but it's very hard to, to be joyful when we had to go through this process to get this result at the hands of the law. Speaking as a lawyer and a prosecutor, you know, you never know what's going to happen in a trial, but I'm not overly surprised. As I've been saying for the past couple of weeks, the case went in very strong. The evidence was strong. The performances by the prosecutors were strong. And as you'll hear me say with Joyce, I think the defense lawyer made some missteps, some things that backfired. But at the end of the day, no amount of lawyering necessarily can do the trick. The facts are the facts. And Derek Chauvin shoved his knee into the back of the neck of George Floyd for nine and a half minutes until he was dead. When the news broke a little while ago that there was a verdict, some people were speculating, well, what does that mean? How quick is it? In my experience, it's a pretty fast verdict. Sometimes they come in more quickly. But this is a big case. The jurors knew that it was a big case, that the whole, not just nation, but world was watching. And there are three counts, uh, and you had to deliberate on each count. They took about 10 or 11 hours. There was expert testimony, there was medical testimony. And you know, in my experience, jurors who talk about what they do, they're pretty methodical. They go through each count, each element of each count, 
and they deliberate over it and have a discussion about it, that takes time. And here, they did it in about 10 or 11 hours. That's about three hours and change per count. And they had no questions. As you may know, jurors are allowed to ask questions if there's some confusion about the legal instructions or about how they're supposed to apply the law to the facts. And they had none of those. So the signal was good, from my perspective, that there would be a guilty verdict. The proceeding where the guilty verdict was rendered was short, somber. Most dramatically, and maybe not everyone appreciated that this would happen, at the conclusion of the rendering of the verdict, the judge asked, like judges ask in other cases all around the country, does the state have a motion? And here the state did, and it was to be expected. Having been convicted, Derek Chauvin no longer had the presumption of innocence. He now became a greater risk of flight because he's a convicted person, and he was immediately remanded to custody. And depending on what sentence he gets, and depending on what happens with any appeals, which will certainly be filed, he will not be a free man for many years. He faces, respectively on the three counts, 40 years, 25 years, and 10 years. We'll see what he gets. I don't know the reputation of this particular judge on sentencing. There will be a lot of discussion and motion practice and briefs with respect to sentencing. It won't happen right away. The judge said in court, it'll take about eight weeks, and there'll be some arguments back and forth about whether or not there are aggravating factors that should affect the sentence. And then, by the way, the saga is not over for other reasons either. There were three other officers who were involved in the incident where George Floyd died. They were severed from the trial of Derek Chauvin, but they will be going to trial later in the summer, in August. Most importantly, separate and apart from this case, is the question of what police departments around the country will do. What message will they get? What lessons will they have learned? Lots of people are responsible for the result here. The prosecutors in the case, the judge in the case, who I think presided in a fair and neutral manner, but also the other witnesses, and in particular, the bystanders, who, to a person, felt emotional and traumatized by having witnessed the murder of George Floyd. And now we can say, murder of George Floyd. That's not alleged anymore. I've been seeing a lot of people use the phrase that's commonly used in these circumstances. Finally, there's been justice for George Floyd. And, and I'm not sure that's the right phrase to use, as a member of his family has said. George Floyd will never come back. George Floyd's daughter will never have her father to hug and to be around her. So justice for George Floyd kind of misses the mark. Justice for George Floyd would have been a system and a set of police officers treating him fairly and honorably and lawfully. And that didn't happen. And that's why he's gone. What we do have today is a form of justice, perhaps not for George Floyd, but within our system, justice in the form of accountability, which we don't see very frequently in circumstances like this. And for what happens next, what comes next for policing and for the country, as I heard Van Jones say a few minutes ago, this is the beginning of something. It's not the end of something. And that's important. Now stay tuned for the show that Joyce Vance and I recorded before the verdict this morning. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And here with me is my very new co-host, Joyce Vance. Joyce, welcome. Thanks. That's all you got to say? That's it. I mean, Thanks. I'm ready to get down to business. I thought you have Preet, a speech. Don't, we... don't you have a speech? No, I, I don't have a speech. I'm here um, to talk some serious stuff with you. 
Well, I thought we were going to discuss penguins, but apparently you're deciding to thwart my best efforts here. I mean, that seems to be the the burning issue here, right? If I'm going to fill Anne's very large shoes, which seems a little bit daunting, we're going to have to confront this issue of penguins at some point or another, aren't we? Yeah, you know, a lot of people have been asking what your position on penguins is. I don't know what that means. Is is it a binary thing? Pro-penguin, anti-penguin? And no one's anti-penguin, right? It seems to me that in some of our most important life decisions, we have um, opinions and views that evolve over time. So I think I'm going to have to undertake some fact-finding on the topic of of (laughs) penguins. Well, there are other animals we can talk about. But first, before we do that— There always are in my house. you— in your case, they're not hypothetical animals. You have you have real animals. But before we get to that, I, I feel like I, should I do an intro of you? Doesn't everyone knows who you are, right? Why don't we start with this? Why don't we start with your your full name, which I think is Joyce Aileen Griffith Joyner Kersey Herbert Walker Vance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. You got a lot of names, Joyce. <laughs> well, I do because you know my my name is Joyce Aileen, and then my maiden name is White. And I actually took my husband's name when we got married. I'm not really sure what mood I was in that I did that, but now I'm a Vance. Now you're a Vance. I'm just going to, can I just call you Joyce? You can. I think you always have. I think I always have. have. There was a lot of speculation in the last week about who would be the new co-host. A number of very smart, insightful people predicted it would be you. One person wrote, well, if someone with the first name that begins with a J, you can call the show PB&J. So should we do that? I don't think so. I sort of like it. Yeah. Um, my favorite guest, <laughs> who is going to be the co-host, <laughs> other than Sidney Powell, Frank Stallone. Nicely done. Would you have been Would you have been hurt if we, if we went with Frank Stallone? I think it would have been an impressive podcast, and I would have continued to listen. <laughs> that is so diplomatic. You know, we don't have to do diplomacy here. Um, I wasn't being diplomatic. I was just being truthful. I see. So, should we mention how we know each other? So, we were both U.S. attorneys. I was in the Southern District of New York. You were in the Northern District of Alabama. I don't know if you remember this. I presume you do. The President of the United States, back then, Barack Obama, announced the intent to nominate both of us on the same day. We were in the first batch of five nominees. Do you remember the date? I don't remember you the don't date. You don't remember the date? No. Should I remember the well, date? Well, I do, because it was, I don't know, it was kind of a big deal for me. Maybe it was, you know, it was run of the mill. Deal. What was the date? May 15, 2009. So I was already in place as the acting. I became the you were, acting. Because you were from within the office, right? April. I was inside I was of a the Senate office. Staffer. But it was a really big deal. It was a surprisingly big deal. So do you, do you remember how we met, which might sound odd to people? I do. I mean, do, do we have the same memory here? We have a friend in common. This is embarrassing. We didn't really prepare this or rehearse this at all. But there is a thing called U.S. Attorney Orientation. <laughs> Isn't that how we met? That's the first time that we met, but we we actually were in touch before then. We have a mutual friend, Leslie Prohl, who's yes. a civil rights lawyer, and she had put us in contact. Yeah. So I, I knew who you were before we met. But then we actually met in in, in D.C. for U.S. Attorney Orient, which I guess people may not realize that even Senate-confirmed folks have an orientation with lots of boring slides and meetings. <laughs> Did you learn anything from the orientation? No offense to the people who ran it, but... I don't I don't remember learning much. I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment on that one. <laughs> it's probably wise. All right. I do have a great picture, though, I have to say. It's a picture of the five of us with Eric Holder. And I'm standing, I think, two or three steps up on a staircase just so that my head's not a foot below the rest of y'all. <laughs> right, right. 
people are always surprised that I'm so short because on TV, you know, TV is the great equalizer where I look just as tall as the rest of you. In the Cafe Insider uh, picture we put together, obviously I haven't seen you in a long time. It's photoshopped. Uh, we're about the same height. We are, and I appreciate that. There's also a photo that you posted not too long ago of you and me on the White House lawn after having met President <laughs> Obama when we were both still in office. And we said then, do you think like five and a half years from now, we're going to be doing a podcast together? I think I would have said, <laughs> I don't know what a podcast is. It seems like we lived on a whole different universe then. I look at those pictures and um, we look so young and so happy. You know, it's sort of pre-Trump era when everything was still a little bit gilded and pretty and we were oh so naive. And I don't know, Joyce, if it was that day when we took the picture on the White House lawn or if it was a different day when we were at the White House, when we were both in office. But I was just reminded last night when I realized we'd be doing our first show together today about something you posted, and it's your pinned tweet. And I remember this just as clear as, it, as if it was yesterday myself. And you posted this just after Christmas in 2017. You wrote, quote, the first time President Obama met with his U.S. attorneys. He told us, quote, I appointed you, but you don't serve me. You serve the American people. And I expect you to act with independence and integrity, end quote. None of us ever forgot that. At least I didn't. And what a quaint thought. It seemed so important at the time. It was for me why I wanted to serve as a U.S. attorney. And thinking about it down the road. You know, I checked with some of our colleagues. I wanted to make sure that my memory was clear. And one You didn't of our, check with me. <laughs> I didn't check with you, Pre, um, but apparently I should have. But no, Peter Nerona, who's now the attorney general in Rhode Island, told me that he had been so moved that he actually wrote it down on a napkin, which was the only thing he had with him. You know, we were all standing up at the White House. He wanted to make sure he never lost the words. And, and I felt the same way. It was an, I mean, it sounds so trite and sappy to say it, right? But Not it was to me. such an honor to, to get to, to serve. A real, a real big deal. No, and to be told that you don't serve him, which, you know, in some ways I don't, I, I appreciated it at the time, obviously, but not as much as I should have, given how the following president treated the Justice Department, the Attorney General, and U.S. attorneys. The, the idea that, that the last guy would have said, you don't serve me, you serve the public. It's almost unthinkable to hear those words coming out of his mouth. And, uh, you know, it seems like we are once again back to that principle that U.S. attorneys and the Justice Department and the Attorney General don't serve the individual president or people in elective office, but serve the public. So, hurrah. It seems like a lot of folks at DOJ, people even who were there during the Trump administration, went out of their way to underscore that point, even, even during tough times. So I think you're right. We are back. So we have a lot to talk about with the Derek Chauvin trial. I know you've been talking about it a lot on television. You were on a different network from the network I'm on. Am I allowed to say the initials? I guess I can. MSNBC. So thanks for your commentary. So I know, I know some of what you think about it, but... We haven't really talked in detail. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. There could be a verdict at any moment. The jury is in deliberations behind closed doors. But yesterday, Monday, saw the prosecution summation, the defense summation, and the prosecution rebuttal. And I guess we can talk about the last week of evidence coming in through the lens of the summation. I have a lot of questions for you and wonder what you think. But I'll tell you, that the thing that got me and made me feel sort of like I got punched in the stomach was in the opening summation of the prosecution, 
the jury was reminded and all of us watching were reminded of the words that George Floyd used as he was on his way to, to dying and the respect with which he interacted with the guy who was going to kill him, Derek Chauvin, and he called him Mr. Officer. And when he got pulled out of that car, he thanked Mr. Officer. He pleaded with Mr. Officer. He said, Mr. Officer, please, I can't breathe. And something about that really stung. And I had forgotten that he had used that phrase. Did you find the summation to be more emotional or clinical or what? I have found it incredibly hard to not react to this case on a personal level and on an emotional level, which is really surprising because I don't know about you, Preet, but I think something that I do, having been a prosecutor for so long, is that these really difficult and painful situations, I'm sometimes better able to process because I do just have that professional lens, right? That almost clinical view of the cases. I had that same reaction when he emphasized the Mr. Officer approach. And, and one of the most effective parts of this first closing argument was making the point that George Floyd was not resisting the officers. And so Slicer went through all of the different things that he had done where he was compliant. They asked him to get out. They put the handcuffs on. They told him to sit down. They told him to walk. And throughout this, George Floyd, you know, looked at the badge, respected the badge, and referred to the officer as Mr. Officer. It was, I think, a moment that humanized George Floyd. Humanized is a word that's been overused this last week, but it is incredibly important for the jury to have the understanding and the belief that George Floyd is a human being who deserves their honest consideration and who deserves justice. And that's what that part of the opening argument did very effectively. Yeah, and there, there were other things like that that I didn't fully focus on during the course of the trial that when woven together in the summation, just really stung. I, the other example that I'm thinking of is, I can't remember if this was in the main summation of the rebuttal. I think it was the main summation by the prosecution. And the prosecutor is talking about indifference and this idea of depraved indifference, which is one of the elements of one of the counts. And he talks about the way Derek Chauvin is, is sitting with his knee pressed on George Floyd's neck. And you know what he does? He's kneeling next to the car and he starts picking rocks out of the tires. I mean, he's killing a man who has stopped resisting. And what is he doing? He's picking little pebbles and rocks out of the tire. This was something that the prosecution did really well. Derek Chauvin obviously didn't testify. So the jury never heard his version of what happened. And the prosecution painted a very effective picture of who he was. That detail, I thought, was heart-stopping. The other thing they did, and I don't know if they overdid this, because, you know, they must have a better sense of the jury than we do. We don't even know the identity of the jurors, just sort of the general um, makeup of the jury, is the prosecutor said, and they did this in the opening statement as well, that policing is a noble profession. Policing is good. Policing is important. This case is not about Minnesota versus the police. It's about Minnesota versus Derek Chauvin. And there are lots of good police officers. Do you think that was overdone? 
I think it was a strategic choice. There, there's a larger conversation that will happen in this country, and it's this older notion. Um, in some corners, people are suggesting that it's wrong to say that this police officer, this particular cop, was a bad apple. And folks want to make the argument that the entire orchard is bad. So let's just set, set aside that larger societal argument and talk about trial strategy, because this is about the prosecution building a case against Derek Chauvin. Something that I know from trying police cases is that you will have some jurors on your jury who are pro-police, and you've got to give them some ground that they can stand on. And so if you're asking them to convict because all police are bad and this is just one of many bad cops, you're going to have some jurors who I think are going to have a hard time going along with you. If, however, you paint the case and the prosecution did this effectively here, they had an amazing number of police witnesses And so the argument is, this is a guy that even his fellow officers don't like. That gives your juror who thinks of themselves as being pro-police, that gives them an area where they can stand in agreement with you and hopefully get to conviction. Yeah. And, you know, they kind of had to separate Derek Chauvin from, you know, the other class of officers in various ways, you know, by by means of his conduct, by emphasizing that he didn't follow his training and all sorts of other things. And, And this raises an issue the prosecutors will talk about, you know, there's a difference between intent and motive. In almost all cases, you have to prove some level of mental state, some level of intent, right? And that's true here. Did he intend to, to, to cause bodily harm? Did he intend to kill? Or did he intend to do something that was reasonably foreseeable that it would cause death or bodily harm? But the question still remains motive. Not necessary to prove, not any part of the legal elements. And it was kind of interesting to see how they talked about it, not at length, but at a a few junctures, the prosecutor in in summation said he had pride, which I thought was an interesting way to describe Derek Chauvin and his motive, that he chose pride over policing. And, you know, in arguing about the dynamic between the bystanders who were telling Chauvin to stop and calling him a bum and saying, you know, what are you doing? Even as they're calling 911, the prosecutor's description of that, characterization of that, was that, you know, he had a lot of pride and he wasn't going to let anyone else tell him what to do. And so he remained knee on the back of the neck, hands in his pockets, pulling pebbles out of the tire. What do you make of, of the pride characterization? So this was something that was nowhere in the trial testimony that you right. heard. And, <laughs> they, and, yeah, yes, exactly. Right? But but that's why I think it worked and, and perhaps why they got away with it. In closing argument for the first time, the lawyers have the chance to argue to the jury about what the evidence means. And so this was certainly a legitimate interpretation. And the prosecution is suggesting to the jury, this is the interpretation you can draw. As you point out, Preet, motive is not an element of this crime. It's in most crimes, not an element. But juries are always very curious about the motive. And the prosecution knew what the defense would do when it closed. They knew that they would make an argument about why would he have done this in full view of cameras? It doesn't make any sense. And and they made that argument. I think that this suggestion that's made sort of in passing, they don't really dwell on it, that he couldn't back down in the eyes of the crowd, that he had to win. I think that gave the jury just enough to get past concerns in that area and that it was well done. You know, I used to give from time to time the lecture to rookie prosecutors on opening statements and on closing arguments. 
then we would talk about motive, right? You don't need to have, you don't need to prove any motive in a robbery case or in a drug case, just that they had the intent to do it. And whether it was because it made them feel like a big shot or it made them money or they felt, um, you know, some compulsion, it, it didn't really matter. And yet jurors are human beings and they'll be asking the question, well, why? Why did he do it? Uh, which is why, in my experience, prosecutors will sometimes begin summations literally with a statement about the motive. You know, this is a case about greed. This is a case about pride. This is a case about, you know, someone wanting to be above the law and some such thing. And I, I think you're right. They did it a little bit, not too much. But you're dead on the money there. That That's exactly what went on. It was a deliberate choice. Sometimes you listen to closing arguments and you're not sure about the choices that were being made. This one was clearly an effort to give the jury a comfort level and a little bit of an answer to a question that didn't have to be answered, but that was important nonetheless. I'm going to turn to the defense summation for a moment, which I thought overall was not particularly focused, was a little bit rambling. But then there was a moment, in, and you and I have mentioned this in, when we were texting before we started recording the show. And I spent a little bit of time on this because, at least to my old prosecutorial ears, it kind of really, really stood out to me. So to my mind, the nub of the case for the defense is causation. Because the intent of Derek Chauvin seems clear. The law is not good for them. But if they can somehow convince jurors that George Floyd died because of a drug overdose or a cardiac event or something other than the knee on the back of the neck, other than asphyxiation, maybe they can convince one or more jurors not to convict. To me, that's the whole you know, ball of wax. Agreed. That's ball game for them. And the law and the instructions on the law, by the way, you wrote a great piece for MSNBC about the importance of jury instructions. Don't get a lot of attention on TV shows and in movies about criminal cases and trials, but that's, that's really the whole ball game. It depends on what the law is. If the law says, for example, that to convict the entire total exclusive cause of death was Derek Chauvin and asphyxiation, well, that's one thing, and that's a problem for the prosecution. If, on the other hand, the law says, you know, some, uh, some other version of that, that it has to have been a substantial causal factor, which, in fact, is the law in Minnesota, then that's very different. And the defense, then, has its hands tied, because the defense then is subjected to, you know, this problem that there were multiple causes of death. And in the middle of the summation, so I'm sitting here in my basement and I'm watching, the defense lawyer misstates the law you know, very plainly and very blatantly. Yeah, there's no doubt, right? It's a moment where I sort of stopped and sat he says, up. He says directly that the, the prosecution has to prove to you that hypertension had nothing to do with the death, did not contribute to the death. That's 100% wrong. And by the way, the other interesting thing about this is, unlike in trials that I'm used to, at least in federal court, much of the jury instruction was given to the jury before the summation. So the judge has already said what the causal you know, factors are, what the standard is. And then the defense lawyer gets up and he says something that's the opposite of that, that helps his client if it's true and helps his client if a jury, if a jury believes it. And my instinct was to, to jump up and wonder why the hell are the prosecutors not objecting? And, you know, I got into a debate with a couple of people via text and I, I didn't do this with you because I want to know what you say and I didn't want to pre-plan, I didn't want to rehearse this. There happens to be a fairly significant tradition of not objecting during other people's jury addresses. It's obnoxious, it's considered impolitic. It also looks like you're maybe afraid of what was said. It makes you look defensive, judges don't like it. 
But I got to tell you, in, in cases where something very dramatic is happening, and it's a complete misstatement of the law on which the whole case hangs, I think I would have gotten up and objected. Not everybody might have. And some people will say, well, you can save it for rebuttal, and you can, you know, you can destroy the credibility of your adversary in rebuttal. But on that point, when Nelson got up and misstated the law in a way that you know, might help him get an acquittal or a mistrial, would you have objected or not? So I would have objected. Trying cases in, in different places, in different car- parts of the country, people have different sort of cultural ways of, of doing things. So maybe this is part of what I've been told is the Minnesota nice culture. I've asked a couple of questions about how they do things. And folks I know who live up there but who aren't from there said, well, that makes sense because of Minnesota nice. But But look, Nelson says that you have to be convinced that drugs or disease played no role in order to convict. And that's just not the law. The jury has just heard the judge read the law. And what it permits Blackwell, the prosecutor, to do in his, in the final closing argument, in the rebuttal, he gets up and he just says, read the instructions for yourself. And then he proceeds, in essence, to, he says, the defense has told you stories. And the implication is you can't trust the defense. So ultimately, this plays pretty well for the prosecution. You know, something about what the defense lawyer did there and it really, really bothered me. And I know some judges, including, for example, Judge Michael Mukasey, who later became the attorney general, who was at one point the chief judge in the Southern District. He sometimes did not wait for an objection. And he would just announce sustained. <laughs> if one of the parties did something that he thought was blatantly wrong or inappropriate. And he'd sometimes be thinking, uh, did I did I miss the objection? <laughs> We had a judge like that, too, and it was, it was as a young lawyer, it was sort of unsettling, right? You're in the middle of something that you You ask a question, and you hear, sustained. sustained. <laughs> the hell did you sustain? Like, so nobody, nobody said anything. I mean, so, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I worry that you have a juror who is listening to the defense lawyer and hears that, you know, statement of the law, and is like, oh, that's sort of interesting. That's a problem for the defense. Maybe there's reasonable doubt there. And then later, when it's, you know, it's not objected to, and then later when the prosecutor corrects it, maybe that juror, you know, isn't paying attention or is confused. You just don't know. I mean, I think it's fine because the instructions are pretty clear and we're not particularly long. And we should recite them for a moment so people know what the law is. And later a juror can ask a question about it. And obviously you have other jurors who can remind the juror who may have been misled by the defense lawyer of what the law is. But I don't know. It's a, I think it's a tough call between not trying to look defensive and correcting something that's really egregious. I would have made the objection, but one advantage to having not made it is it's just one less problem that the prosecution has on appeal if there is a conviction, right? So I'm a former appellate lawyer. I was the chief of the appellate division in my U.S. attorney's office before I became the U.S. attorney. And I became the appellate chief after having spent a decade as a line prosecutor. So I had enormous sympathy for decisions that folks make in the moment, in the heat of battle and trial, because I had screwed stuff up about every way that you could. But as an appellate lawyer, you really worry about the implications of stuff that happens in trial. You know, a year or two down the road when three folks in black robes are scrutinizing the record. So from an appeal point of view, this, this is okay, assuming that they get there. It just it reminds me of a story because you can't research everything beforehand. And depending on how much trial experience, you might not realize what is 
fully appropriate, not appropriate. And there's a famous case where the Southern District was prosecuting somebody, some white collar case, I believe. And the defense lawyer was, was Bob Morvillo, the late Bob Morvillo, was, you know, a really great, famous trial lawyer, defense lawyer in New York, had been the chief of the criminal division in SDNY some years earlier. And he, he, he gets up and he gives a real stem winder of a summation. I mean, it's really terrific. It changes the mood in the courtroom. He's landed a whole bunch of points. Maybe he's convinced some jurors that there's reasonable doubt. And the AUSA, the prosecutor on the case who is going to do the rebuttal, the same thing that Blackwell did yesterday, is trying to figure out a way to sort of change the mood in the courtroom. <laughs> he, he turns to his trial partner and he says, when I, when I stand up, when it's my turn to go, and I wonder what you think about this. When it's my turn to go, I'm going to, I'm going to applaud. I'm going to give him a, a round of applause. I, I don't think I should name the, the prosecutors in the case, one of whom is now on the Second Circuit, by the way. <laughs> and the person who's now on the Second Circuit says, I don't think you should do that. And the AUSA, I'll just say the first name, his name is Pat, says, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And he gets up there, and he, <laughs> he literally, the first thing he does, my recollection is, And he says something like that was some closing argument. That was really terrific. Bob Morvillo's, and he, he, and he basically tries to shift the mood in the courtroom by acknowledging that it was a tour de force, but it doesn't change the facts. And the facts are these. <laughs> then they get back to the <laughs> office and they're, they go, I think they go to talk to someone in appeals. And uh, the person in appeals, I think, thought that he was being pranked. He said, you didn't actually applaud, did you? And Pat says, oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I, yes, I, yes, I did. And the, uh, the, the appellate lawyer in the office was like, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And, and the theory is, and by the way, this happened in the Chauvin trial. If you, if you belittle or cast aspersions on the nature of the defense, you know, people don't like that. It's like the Second Circuit's not going to like that. And in fact, it went up to the Second Circuit. The AUSA, in the opinion by the Second Circuit, was admonished. By name or not by name? Not by name. And the funny thing is that the, the AUSA who had clapped wasn't the one who argued the case. So his name is not in, <laughs> is not in, the, yeah. is not in the appeal because they decided, you know, he has, you know, kind of a conflict and he shouldn't be the one. And the other person, Rich, who argued the appeal, he's always been annoyed because it's not clear because it seems like he was the guy <laughs> who clapped and he wasn't. And in one part of the opinion... It says something like, while we do not, literally, yeah, these are what Second Circuit judges do, while we do not applaud the conduct of the prosecutor in the case, we find no reversible error. So that was a long, that was a long-winded way of saying, you got to be careful about how you deal with the defense and how you talk about the defense. And, by, and here, you know, whether it's Minnesota nice or not, the defense lawyer wasn't following that because even though he did not get objected to when he misstated completely the law, he objected when Mr. Blackwell a few times referred to the defense arguments as stories. Do you think that was a well-placed objection? You know, it was sustained. It seemed to me that it was more of an objection that you make not because you're going to really do something with it, but because you want the jury to understand that you don't like what's happening. It's not an objection that I would have made, but from a defense perspective, maybe there was a reason to do it. Well, he was, he was more lengthy about it afterwards. And, you know, by the way, there's a difference between the two parties because the defense lawyer obviously was not going to get another chance to speak. And in the main summation of the, of the defense lawyer, the prosecutors could decide we're not going to object because we can actually address it in our rebuttal summation. So, you know, I, you know, I don't know, but look, to be clear, people should understand 
as the judge said to the jury, the law is as follows, quote, to cause death, causing the death, or caused the death, means that the defendant's act or acts were a substantial causal factor in causing the death of George Floyd. Not the exclusive factor, this is me now, not the exclusive factor, but just a substantial causal factor. And then the instruction goes on to say very explicitly, quote, the fact that other causes contribute to the death does not relieve the defendant of criminal liability, end quote. So, you know, it takes account of the idea that there could have been drugs in the system. It takes account of the idea that maybe he had an enlarged heart, but that's not a problem so long as the acts of Derek Chauvin substantially caused the death. And they they had this great chart that they did in the rebuttal with a dot representing each day of George Floyd's life. And he didn't die in any of those days. He happened to die of these other causes, the defense claims, only when a knee was put in the back of his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. I thought that was pretty powerful. That chart was really effective, and it goes to this notion of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. What what that chart really said was, you have to be willing to believe in this incredible universe of, of coincidence where suddenly George Floyd's underlying medical condition catches up with him in the same moment that Derek Chauvin's knee is on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. I thought the chart was was really well done. You know, on summations, we should just make, take a moment to address, you know, what the point of the summation is from the prosecution and the defense perspective. And from the defense perspective, what do you think is the goal of the defense? And depending on that, how do you think Nelson did with respect to that goal? So I've never been a defense lawyer, nor do I play one on television. But it seems to me that this too, it's all about reasonable doubt, right? The defense has to make the jury feel confused, uncertain, unwilling to rely on the prosecution's theory of the case. Let's say, and I I don't think that this is what happened in this trial, to be honest, but let's say that there had been a defense witness who had taken the stand and said fentanyl is a dangerous drug, and even with George Floyd's tolerance as a bit of a user, this dose could have killed him. And in fact, there was white foam around his mouth and he passed out and, you know, blah, 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 and had fleshed out that theory. That would create enough of a level of doubt that the jury would have something maybe to acquit on or a couple of jurors might have hung on. That's what the defense has to do. Literally, their only job is to do something that's punchy and that gets your attention as a juror and makes you doubt the prosecution. And there were some strategic choices here that didn't add up to doing that, particularly how long this closing argument by the defense went on. There's other weird stuff he did, you know, that I thought backfired. For example, at some point... The defense lawyer starts talking about how the medics came and took George Floyd, and there was a question of whether or not they should have given him Narcan to counteract the fentanyl that was in his system. And he says a couple of times, look, I'm not blaming the paramedics, but of course, he sounds like he was. But it's a bit rich to sort of assert as as some of your defense or a partial defense that other people, when they arrived on the scene, should have rendered medical care when his own client didn't. After George Floyd stopped talking, after George Floyd stopped resisting, after apparently he stopped breathing or having a pulse. I wonder if some of these things were just stupid or is there some clever tactic that I'm not getting? I I didn't follow that. So I had that same reaction when I was listening to it. And then I went back through my notes this morning. And here's the conclusion that I reached. and, And I wonder if you agree with me. 
I felt like by the end of this trial, the defense was in a really bad place. I'm not talking now about whether the jury will convict or not, but just looking at the evidence and the proof, the defense really had tried a couple of gambits and they just didn't work. They didn't have a lot to do. And so I think Nelson resorted to some, I'll I'll just say cheap shots. I mean, I don't mean that in that sense necessarily, but they were just, he was throwing some spaghetti on the wall and hoping something would stick in the mind of one juror. But by the way, you know, I keep hearing that phrase used and that characterization made, and I guess it's meant partially as a criticism, but it's not really because, because the goal is- No, it's not at all. You throw five strands of spaghetti at the wall, maybe one juror likes one strand, another juror likes another strand, it gives them reasonable doubt. It would be a terrible strategy for a prosecutor to be scattershot. The prosecutor has to make a substantial evidence-based case, thorough, tight, with evidence for each and every element beyond a reasonable doubt. You can't just be, you know, a hodgepodge of this and that and the other. But defense lawyer can. And, you know, he, he also did a couple of things Maybe they were aimed at self-deprecation. But he said at one point, I know I'm long-winded. I think self-deprecation is always a good thing, but maybe you don't crystallize something like that for folks. And you know, I noted that the judge seemed to see that jurors were getting impatient and restless, and he took a break in the middle of, I mean, it's kind of odd when a summation is not that long. It's fairly long, but it's not you know an eight-hour summation that you take a break for a meal in the, in the middle. And then you know, there are other things that he said that ultimately, and maybe you're right, that his back was up against a wall and he didn't really know how to argue. He kept saying, you know, this point that if you can speak, you can breathe. If you can speak, you can breathe. And I think you made this point on Twitter, which is exactly correct. Yeah, even if that's true, which there was dispute about, at some point, George Floyd stopped speaking. So it doesn't get you very far. I mean, it, it, it seems like he wanted to argue about the 16 minutes before the nine minutes and 29 seconds or the initial confrontation or the, the initial taking down of George Floyd and putting him in cuffs. Even if all of that was fine, again, there's a dispute about that, but even if all of that was fine, that doesn't save you when you get to minute six and minute seven, right? I mean, he says at one point, the defense lawyer, uh, you know, the prone position, he defends the prone position. And I think I I wrote in my notes at one point, he said, people get massages in the prone position. (laughs) I thought, what the hell are you talking about? And, And this doesn't help, right? This hurts. The jury has the same reaction that you had. It it was a surprising choice he made. People get massages in the prone position. I mean, it's kind of like almost, that's kind of of crazy. So so maybe it wasn't strategic or tactical. It was just, you know, an error because the facts are really not on on their side. There are various schools of thought about rhetorical flourishes at trial. And you gotta be a little bit careful about them. And if you're gonna use them, I always advise on the prosecution side, use them in rebuttal because it can't be stuffed, you know, in your face by, you know, turning it against you by the defense in a, in a subsequent argument because you get the last word. And Prosecutor Blackwell finished his summation. I don't have the exact words in front of me, but it was quite the turn of phrase. And I, I found it to be effective. You were told that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. You heard that testimony. And now having seen all the evidence, haven't heard all the evidence, you know the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. Good clothes or not? Blackwell did this so well. A lot of people would have overplayed this, would have, you know, given the jury the impression that they were being too cute by halves. But that wasn't Blackwell. It was understated. His voice sort of dropped a little bit as he did this. 
I wish we could have seen the jury's faces. That's something that's bothered me throughout this trial, not not knowing how the jury is reacting. That's being done for their safety, obviously. It is, and it's important that they have that anonymity. I thought that he landed this, and the reason it landed is because it was true. I think a lot of people may have thought that when they heard the testimony about George Floyd's heart being too big from the defense's medical expert. The entire dynamic for this trial, just a little bit of mercy, a little bit of human kindness from Derek Chauvin would have changed this situation. There wouldn't be a trial because George Floyd would have been put into the recovery position. Derek Chauvin would have let up a little bit. This really gets to the core of what's going on here. And if the jury believes that Derek Chauvin was wantonly indifferent and reckless about human life, then they should convict him on that murder third degree charge. That's what this statement was all about. The prosecution wants that murder three conviction. One more issue came up after the trial. And that is that the defense pointed to statements by a particular member of the House, Maxine Waters, who has made public statements about how the public shouldn't accept an acquittal and some statements about protests. And the judge kind of excoriated her from the bench about those statements and said, you know, openly in court, you know, maybe that's an issue you have on appeal as the expert appellate lawyer in this duo. There's no basis for an appeal on that ground, is there? No, I don't think so. It would have to be something really theoretical, like one of the jurors walked into deliberations and said, listen, we have to return a guilty verdict because if we don't, Maxine Waters is going to hate us, right? It would have to be something like that. Directly linked, because because you presume that the jurors are not following the news of the case as they've been advised to do. Well, and, and cases, convictions would always get reversed on appeal if this was objectionable. So I think one way, you know, the, the kindest way of reading the judge's comments is that he's very concerned about protecting his record on appeal. Unfortunately, this had a different impact. And, and I think in much of the community, there is a concern now that, that the judge is not an objective actor, whether that's fair or not. Right. So what's going to happen, Joyce? I have such a bad crystal ball for trials the, the evidence in this case was very good. I don't think anyone could have expected evidence to go in as well as it did. I've tried a number of these cases. You just don't have this evidence. You don't have the bystanders. You don't have the video from multiple points of view. You don't have five police officers who take the stand and say this was excessive force. So it was a unique case. But I have also had juries hang on these cases. Police cases are very difficult to convict in. Even a, a verdict for manslaughter would be significant here. Any, any guilty verdict would be an enormous piece of accountability, and it would send a deterrence message to other police officers. So I hope that there will be a conviction, but I'll, I'll just say I've, I've had my heart broken by juries before. Yeah, I mean, for me, I agree that the evidence was very strong, came in well. The prosecutors did a great job. The defense was not so effective because I don't think they had a lot to work with. Common sense governed. I mean, Blackwell said at the beginning of his rebuttal, you know, there's a 46th witness, which I thought was, you know, a little bit of a weird uh, metaphor. Yeah, it was a little corny. It was a little corny. Corny is fine, but it was a little odd because people are like, who's the 46th witness? And he said, the 46th witness is the only one who's going to be talking to you when you go back and deliberate, and that's common sense. I'm like, oh, common sense, the common sense 46th witness. So I think the likelihood of a straight-up acquittal on three counts, given the devastating evidence and the good presentation, I think is very low. But you never know 
what one, two, three, or four jurors might think, how they could be confused, how they might find reasonable doubt, how they might have some bias that was undisclosed. And so it could certainly hang. It could certainly hang. And it's interesting here because since there are three different charges, the jury can hang on one count. They could even hang on two. As long as they convict on one of the charges, that's enough. The problem will be if they hang on all three of those charges. Joyce, before we go, I heard something from the the writer, historian, Eddie Glaude on television yesterday. And it really has struck me, and I keep thinking about it. And he, what he said when he talked about this case, and people will ask the question, I'm sure you'll be asked the question, what does it mean if there's a conviction or not a conviction? It doesn't solve our problems. And th- there's a lot riding on the case, maybe too much. And he said, quote, speaking of the Chauvin case, quote, this case bears the burden of our national sins, end quote, which I think is a very profound thing and something we're going to have to think about. And it's, it's not going to be good enough, no matter what happens, for people to think we've turned some corner just because there are convictions in this case, if there are. You know, I love Eddie Gloud. He has a way of capturing things in, in a way that really makes sense. And I do have a little bit of a concern here. This jury is deciding the specific case of the innocence or guilt of, of Derek Chauvin, and they need to decide that based just on the evidence of the law in this case. But Eddie is right. This problem of policing is not a problem that will go away. It shouldn't go away. It is an issue that we have to take on. That's a moral imperative if we're going to continue to be a country that delivers fairness and justice for all of its people. Yes, you're absolutely correct. I think we should we should end there. Joyce, did you have a good enough time? Will you, will you come back next week and then the week after and then the week after that? I don't know, Pete. Let me think about it. For you a signed minute. a contract. No, this is great. I did, right? I, I don't have a choice. So it's a good thing that I knew you before I walked into this um, and knew what I was getting into. This is wonderful. I am so excited to get to be here with you. And I, I'm really looking forward Listen, to it. And you don't, have, you don't have to be in a room with me because we're, we're in pandemic and you can be in the ham. Sitting in my basement in Birmingham, looking out at a gorgeous, gorgeous day. It's pretty gorgeous here, too, actually. Anyway, welcome, Joyce. It's been great. We will talk next week. So we'll be back next Tuesday. Send us your questions to letters at cafe.com. Please do. We look forward to answering all of your questions. Thank you for listening. To hear more Cafe Insider content, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. And for a limited time, Use the code JOYCE for 50% off the annual membership price. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. That's it for this week's Cafe Insider podcast. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community.